Hello and welcome to reInvent and welcome to the Enterprise Fastlane. Thank you very much for coming to this session. I realize this has been a long day already. You sat through the keynote, you sat through sessions, you tried to get your deep lenses, you sat through many other sessions and boot camps, and still you're here. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Constantine Gonzalez and I brought Christian Deger here as my co-speaker. And uh, we are going to cover some things around enterprise cloud transformation. And if I were to pick a song by our house band, like uh, Andy Jassy did, my song would be Changes by David Bowie, because this is all about managing change, and you'll see in a minute how. We're going to cover how to become cloud native, how to become a true cloud company and a true embracer of the cloud. We're going to see how to transition from a difficult to change environment into something that embraces evolutionary architecture and therefore is a lot, a, a lot of better fit for the future. And how to drive cultural change across the organization because technology is just one half of the picture. We'll learn from real world enterprise IT transformation experience from people who have actually done it. And hopefully you will take away some tools and ideas for your own digital journey, for your own company and for your own transformation. And let me start this talk with a number, and that number is 15 years. Because 15 years today is the average lifespan of an S&P 500 company. And uh, so who has an idea of what that average age used to be maybe 80 years ago? Any ideas here, any numbers? Five. Five, okay, do I hear more? <laughs> 40, 40. Ah, that sounds better, more? 75, it's somewhere in between. It's actually 67 years. In the 1920s, at the very beginning of the S&P 500 statistics, it was 67 years. Now, if you work for a company that is older than 15 years, it's no, not, not a time to panic yet. So you, you, you'll be around for a while still. But I think what these numbers are telling us is that the world is changing and the world is changing faster. I think that is a key point here. We need to understand how change works and how to embrace faster change and how to make that change possible if we are to still be around in the next five, 15 years or 62 years or whatever that number is going to be. So these are companies that are right now good examples of new companies that are younger than 15 years and they're all associated with something called digital innovation. And that is something that our bosses tell us to do in our large enterprises. I work with many large enterprises and all of them have some form of a digital agenda or a chief digital officer or somebody who tells them, okay, you gotta do this digitization thing. So let's look at it a little bit closer at what the word digital really means because whenever I ask my customers, so what is digitization? I end up hearing a lot of confused things some people say, hey, we have a, a mobile app, that's digitization. And uh, if you ask some politicians, they tell you about, um, oh, we need to, to have a bigger network in our country or something like that. So there's many different things. And I think it's, it's easy because in a way, everything that is digitization is about creating value out of data. And if you look at the, the business models of the Airbnbs and the Netflixes and the MyTaxis and all these other companies who are like the poster childs of digitization, all of them put data as the center of their value creation process, as the center of their business process. 
And the only way to do that, the only way to create value out of data is actually to doing software. Now that sounds super obvious, right? But you wouldn't imagine how hard it is for my large enterprise customers to realize that they now need to write their own software, that they should be proficient in creating software, coding, or becoming builders. And that is actually the key here to understanding your own digital transformation. You all need to understand how to make builders out of your employees in your large companies, because that is where the value is created. Because if you don't do it, if you just hire an agency or hire somebody else to do the building for you, then it is that somebody else who is going to own your digital business model. And then it will be easy for them to sell it to somebody else like your competition. So if you really want to embrace a digital business model, by consequence, it means that you need to own that business model, that you need to build it on your own. And it's nowhere as easy to build as in the cloud. So the other thing about digitization is it means, by definition, that there are no physical limitations. And that is the, 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 the easy thing. That's the great thing about digitization. You don't have any limits on where your business model is, where, how you get your business model to your customers, and how far you can grow. Because here, really, the sky is the limit, because there is nothing in the physical world that will, that will prevent you from growing, from getting to your customers, from, from in, improving whatever your service is. And in, in that sense, cloud is kind of like digital IT. And here's another super obvious thing, because people will tell me, oh, Constantine, of course, a computer is always digital, so what are you telling me now? The thing here is, Cloud is digital IT in that there are no physical limitations to using IT in the cloud. You don't have to, to order a server, unpack a server, put it in some closet or some, some rack and, and cutting your fingers and, and connecting them and, and installing stuff. All of, that, all of the thing that used to make IT difficult, hard, or worthy of being outsourced have gone away. And now you can use IT very quickly, very easily, worldwide, fully automatic, and in a matter of minutes. So that is the, the value of, of cloud to your business. It means that you now have no physical limitations for IT. And that is, that is interesting, because as you go back to your digital innovation team or whoever asks you to do digitization, you can ask back, OK, great. Now, what would you be able to do if you had access to unlimited IT capacity? and try to get them to think outside of the, the box that the data center used to be. And that is, to me, the key in understanding digitization. It's asking your business people, what are the new things that you thought weren't possible before, and, that, and, and start from a clean slate of your dreams and what you want to do for your customers. And that means that you need to learn how to innovate and how to innovate faster. Because innovation really is this cycle. You start with an idea, you build some kind of a product, some kind of product out of your idea, and then you give your product to your customers and you measure how that product works, and then you learn and you improve on that cycle. The thing is that this cycle used to take years. And the key is now, how can you improve that cycle? How can you accelerate the innovation cycle in your company to become more competitive? So, Acceleration is the key here, just to, to continue on the theme we started with. So I would like you to ask your business people how to accelerate that cycle and how to measure something like time to revenue. 
How long does it take from the moment your business person comes up with a new digital business idea, remember, based on data, until you can actually generate some revenue out of that idea? How long does that cycle take in your company? And that is a new KPI that many people don't really track because they simply assume that every project has to take three years because it always took three years, right? Now, the question becomes, how can you make that cycle faster? Or how can you do that in practice? So this is what we're going to cover in the rest of the talk here. And everybody will sell you some digital transformation thing, right? Um, software companies will tell you, buy this software, this new technology, and that will help you achieve digital transformation. Or buy our new service, and then you will enjoy digital transformation. Or buy lots of our consultants that help you with your digital transformation. And it's all centered around technology. And I have to apologize if you think that this conference is all about technology. Because in reality, Digital transformation only works if you have the right people, the right organization, and the right processes in your company. And I would actually argue that the people in your company are more important than the technology that you're using to implement your digital business model. So it really comes down to culture. How is your culture structured? How is your organization structured? And what are the, the mechanisms that you have in your company, in your culture, that either help with innovation, that help with digitization, or that may be in the way because they are still assuming a limited set of IT capabilities from old data centers? And to help you understand that kind of transformation, I'm very happy to introduce you to Christian Deger. He is one of my customers. And he actually helped his company transform, and he'll tell you about what he learned during that process. So please welcome Christian Deger. Thank you, Constantine, for the introduction and the first part of the presentation. Yes, I'm Christian Deger. I'm chief architect at Autoscout24. I'm with Autoscout now for over seven years. And about three and a half years ago, we started the planning phase of the transformation I will now be talking about. And I was part of that whole journey and also changed into the role of an architect in that journey. So what is Autoscout? We are uh, the largest online car marketplace Europe-wide. So we're in the used car listing business. We have about 2.4 million uh, vehicles uh, as listings on our platform at every given point in time. Uh, and our idea or goal is to make the whole process of buying and selling uh, used cars uh, simple, efficient, and stress-free. In essence, uh, you can think of Autotrader in the, in the US. This is our legacy IT platform that was in existence when we started our transformation and is also still in existence because we're in a hybrid state. We're in the middle of our journey. We are on the Microsoft Windows ASP.NET stack with Oracle as a database. The whole thing is virtualized using VMware. We are running roughly uh, 2,000 virtual servers into data centers for disaster recovery. And the whole setup is optimized for mean time between failure, meaning expensive hardware with redundant power supplies and magic of VMware to actually give the developers the experience of a never-failing hardware infrastructure and higher available setup. This is what we'll 
looked like from an organizational perspective. We had a development department, which was driven by the need for change, meaning they wanted to introduce new features in production. Then we had the operations department. They were driven by the need for stability. Never touch a running system is their mantra. And between those two silos, the dev and the op silos, a virtual wall was, was, uh, could be experienced. For example, visible as a ticketing system between those two departments. When software developers want to stand up new machines for a new service they want to build, they need to write a ticket, uh, they need to discuss the specifications, they need to wait. And when they want to bring software into production, they more or less need to throw the software packages over the wall to the operations teams to actually operate and run the software. And friction was introduced there. For example, the, the software developers introduced a performance degradation into the application. The operations teams just spun up additional VMware to cope with the additional load and developers even didn't even notice. So there was a disconnect. These were true silos. I believe many of you have seen similar setups in, in your organizations. And we did not only had this handover, there were additional handovers between product and software development, between development and the QA phase. So all of those handovers take time and slow you down and you can't be as fast as you wish to be. So within Autoscout, there were already groups who wanted to change this, who wanted to overcome this, this organizational friction and, and change things. We don't wanted to end up with the red enterprise IT adoption cycle, uh, which is censored, What's, what could happen there. We wanted to stay on the rest of the world curve. We wanted to, to stay there where we, where we actually could adopt new things and go ahead. But there was a lot of internal inertia, which we at that point in time could not overcome. Things changed when in 2013, our parent company, Scout24, was sold to private investors and a new CEO came on board and he started asking questions. Uh, do you attract talent? He noticed we're a windows.net shop and we're in the internet business. There are not many companies doing that. So are we getting the right engineers to actually uh, do internet scale web applications in, in a modern stack? Uh, and are we ready for the future? Is, is this a setup which, uh, would bring us uh, the next advantages in, in the future. So we sat back and said, okay, this is now our window of opportunity to actually change things in our company. And this is what we set out to actually do. Foremost, we were initially driven by going from Windows to Linux and from .NET to the JVM, mostly due to Windows is not an easy thing to operate in production and to automate, which is way easier in the Linux stack. And for the reasons mentioned before, a lot of internet companies in for three years ago, when we looked out into the world, were using the JVM as their base uh, runtime for, for the internet workloads. So this was the first change in our technology stack. Then we also wanted to re-architect our monoliths into a microservices architecture. We wanted 
to go out of the data center and move to AWS. And the already mentioned Dev and Ops silos we wanted to get rid and go to a true collaboration culture or to a true DevOps culture. And to not only make a technical migration out of this project, we also involve the product people to actually help us build a new version of Autoscout while doing the transition. These are a lot of changes we introduced at the same time. Uh, there were main notions that we could do this in a step-by-step -step way, but we realized that we take one of those things out of this transformation, the whole thing would not make sense anymore. So we kept the whole package and went along. Now let's briefly talk about what I believe is the importance behind microservices, why we are changing to microservices. It's the speed. This is already what Constantine mentioned. We need to get faster. Microservices should allow us to be faster. And we not only want to be fast with a small team like in a startup, we also want to stay fast while we scale the organization and have many of those teams. If you have seen the keynote, uh, AWS is quite a large an organization. Still, they are able to innovate. And the reason behind that is that they have those fast local decisions, what we also want to, to have the speed. And autonomous teams are the ingredient that supports this. This allows you to have those cell-based teams to actually scale up your organization. And within those autonomous teams, uh, you allow them to do those fast local decisions. These autonomous teams then also are loosely coupled and have loosely coupled services so that they are not, don't need to be discussed uh, with others. So there's no dependencies. There is also the notion of having strong boundaries. From a product perspective, the services are organized around a bounded context. And from an infrastructure perspective, there are microservices that are isolated processes. And of course, those services need to be independently deployable. You don't need to wait for others to actually release your microservices. And together with the fast local decisions, you will also see a technology diversity between the teams because the, you're not going through a committee decision for all technology decisions you make within those teams, which will lead to some technology diversity. Now, when thinking about microservices uh, in, in the year 2014, we looked at some examples how co companies actually do microservices. We have Amazon in, from 2008, those so-called Death Star diagrams with a lot of services talking to each other, all of those services dependent on, it, on each other. And a similar picture from Twitter in 2013, uh, these are not architecture diagrams those companies use to actually reason about their microservices. These are merely uh, dependency diagrams uh, derived from, from network uh, flows and, and the like. But nevertheless, this felt very complicated to us. These are really distributed systems. Just not having experience with microservices, this felt overwhelming. This is why we settled with a different microservices flavor, which we called uh, which are now called self-contained systems. And the core idea is that you have those vertical slices which make up your whole system uh, applications. And those self-contained systems are microservices that integrate into UI 
and also have their own UI. And they are organized and built around a business capability that is owned and built by one team. So we have many of those self-contained systems which are compromise of the, the whole stack from the back end to the front end. In November 2014, the first team started with, with the transformation. Total Greenfield, we opened up our AWS account. Uh, the, the members of this team from the prior software development and from the operations team, we put them together. Uh, in one team, I was part of this team, and we were closely aligned. We shared all the visions behind uh, our, our transformation, how to go forward. We, we read all the blocks. We, we were talking the whole day. And the idea was that we start building the first services and then pull in other members of the organization and form a second team, uh, and then later on, add even more teams and, and go to four teams. And when we were at four teams, we realized that all of the initial ideas, we would try to transport this also to the, the, the newly joined uh, members of those teams. But it was not easy for us to actually transport this. This is why we came up with a set of principles which should drive our IT culture, how we should go forward. Those principles, and there is a lot of text on there, so you please don't read all of this. Um, it's just as an example. We have our strategic goals, which is what we, in alignment with the business, believe that we should go forward to. And as Constantine already mentioned, here is reduced time to market, but reduced time to revenue uh, is also a term I, I like very much. So this is the notion of being fast. And also, as Constantine already mentioned, uh, data-driven decisions. Use your data to actually drive forward and, and generate values. And other more scout-specific things are in there. And this same goes for all the other things you will see. There are generic things in there which you can uh, identify yourself with. And there are things specifically to our culture, to our business in there. We have our architectural principles which support the strategic goals, and we have the design and delivery principles to support those architectural principles. Those principles we learned are very valuable to us for many reasons. First of all, going through the process to actually write up those principles, to align behind those principles, and then to iterate and evolve those principles is very valuable to actually sharpen those principles and the line behind them, then it's very valuable to actually have a reality check. See whether you, after a year or half a year, are still in alignment with those principles or whether the organization is drifting away from those principles and then uh, reinforce them. And it's also very valuable for meetings and discussions and design decisions when you can point back to those principles and say, okay, we are going in that direction because this is in alignment with our principles. I will not go through all of them. I will just point out two which are important to me, uh, and we will not, and we, which we will not touch later on. Differentiate between macro and micro architecture. This is what gives the team, the teams, the autonomy. We have a macro architecture, 
we, we deploy to AWS, how our account setup is done, how we deal with security and network. And then we have the micro-architecture. This is the part where the teams are responsible for. And actually differentiating strongly between those two gives the teams the boundary in which they have their autonomy and where they are responsible and where they're actually touching the macro-architecture. And something which we early on agreed on, upon to actually be AWS first. This means to us, we want to avoid the undifferentiated heavy lifting. AWS provides more and more services over time. And we said, even three years ago, we go all in AWS. If, if in doubt, if there is an AWS service you can use, don't roll your own, don't build your own, don't use anything else out there, go with the AWS service. And only if you don't find one, Make, make further decisions or build something your own. Just reiterating what Konstantin said, the build, measure, learn, feedback loop, this is the reason why we want to be fast. This loop should be as fast as possible. When talking about microservices, Conway's law is, Conway's law is very important. In, in essence, it's stating that your organizational communication structure will be reflected in your architecture. The typical example that's given is if you have three teams that have the task to build a compiler, they will build a three-pass compiler because this is how the teams have been set up. <coughs> and this is a law in the sense that you can experience and witness the influence of, of, of this alignment between organizational communication structure and your architecture over and over again. And you also can see that there will be friction if they are not aligned. And the inverse is then also true. When you say you want to build microservices, you also need to organize yourself with alignment to those microservices. You need to organize yourself in those autonomous teams in cells that are organized around business capabilities. Otherwise, you will introduce friction. Those autonomous teams uh, are responsible for a lot of things. And this also means uh, you are thinking in terms of products and not projects. Uh, these teams are then also have a, not, they are not only autonomous, they have freedom and responsibility. And one of those responsibilities is that they're actually building, uh, actually running what they're building. You build it, you run it. So our teams are now on call for the software they bring into production. There is nobody from the ops teams whose pager is going off and then he has to maintain or uh, find a defect in the service he, he never has built. The teams themselves are on call and they need to fix services. This has many positive effects which are not that obvious in the beginning. But those teams will then build services that are resilient because they don't want to be woken up by their services going down. And they also take ownership over those services. They are proud of those services because they have the end-to-end -end responsibility. This is also true then for the evolution of those services. They are the ones who are ex trying out new features in their services. Uh, they, are, they are the ones who should understand the customer. They are the ones who are measuring the, the, the business metrics on, on the services to improve those services. And those you build it, you run it teams, comprised of devs and ops and product people, 
the, the engineers now don't differentiate between the roles anymore. They now all call themselves engineers. When you have technology diversity and you allow teams to make their own decisions, you don't also want to have a lot of different things. We don't want to go in, in totally in the wrong direction. And what's working really well, what, what we have seen is something what I call follow the trail. Typically, the first team that needs to solve a problem. In our case, when we started initially, the, we required a logging infrastructure, we required something for monitoring, we required uh, something for, for continuous delivery. The next teams will just pick up those tools or those ideas and follow. Meaning, we don't explicitly standardize on things because we don't want to lock down those teams in prior made decisions, but we use things like templates, which they can use, in which all the knowledge of the prior teams is encapsulated so that they can use this knowledge and uh, be fast. And teams want to build uh, uh, services that provide business value, so typically they will just pick up what the other teams have built, but if their use case requires a different approach, they are free to go off the trail and explore new, new territories and learn something from that. And when talking about those cell-based setup with those many autonomous teams, as said, those are optimized for fast local decisions. But on the other side, the cross-team or cross-department communication is something we are not optimizing for, and this is intentional. But still, we need to learn from each other, and we need to make decisions, and we need to have those expert, group, expert groups. This is why we introduced the concept of guilds. These self-organized common interest cross-team uh, groups are there to actually have the exchange between those, those expert groups. We, have, for example, have a macro architecture guild, which is responsible for the macro architecture we previously uh, touched. We have an infrastructure guild, we have a front-end guild, and we have a QA guild. And when talking about those dev and op silos and the different experts within a team, you also need to look out for silos within a team. So we talked about the dev and op silos in in, in the organization, and when you put a developer next to an ops guy, you don't necessarily magically get a DevOps culture because they might be just sitting on the opposite side of the team room and never talk to each other. So pairing, code reviews, actually working together on tasks helps to make this cross-functional teams which are actually able to support all the things that are required. Now let's look at continuous delivery. And this is one of the, the most important prerequisites in, in you need to follow. This is one of those, you need to be so this tall to actually do microservices in the cloud, in, at least in my opinion. This is something you, you need to get, you need to familiarize yourself with if you're not already doing it. What's the, the most simple version of a delivery pipeline I, I could think of, which we used in the data center already. We have, in our example, a GitHub repository per service, and the code for this service is stored. 
You then have a commit stage where on every commit into this repository, you take out of all of the source code, compile it, run your unit tests. And if everything is fine and you're comfortable that this is a valid version of your software artifact, you deployment, you make a deployment package out of it and store it somewhere. And then comes the delivery phase, where you take the software artifact and deliver these packages to those servers, hopefully without interruption and hopefully automated. The idea behind these delivery pipelines is that they are repeatable because they are automated. They should work the same all the time. They are reliable because everything is automated and you have a lot of verification steps in there. And they're also traceable, meaning all changes are coming from the source code repository and only this is the way to go into production. But there's something wrong with this setup. We have now traceability and reliability with code that's coming onto those servers. What we don't have is control over the other infrastructure changes happening to those servers in the data center. The former operation team was patching those servers. So there was a lot of changes introduced to those machines that went not through the delivery pipeline. This is why we took the opportunity and improve upon this delivery pipeline when moving to AWS. We now have the application code and the infrastructure specification in the repository for the service. And in the commit stage, we do not only produce the service artifact to be deployed, we also create the infrastructure declaration in AWS typically CloudFormation templates and some glue code to apply them. And in the delivery phase, in the first step, we apply the infrastructure changes to our production environment. And then when those new instances or containers are started only then, the new packages are deployed to them or you have already base AMIs where, where everything is run there. So now we have the advantage that all infrastructure and code changes, infrastructure as code, is coming through the same pipeline. There are no out-of-band changes going into production. And if you start early on with principles like this, you have the opportunity that everything that's happening in production is versioned in your source code repository and only delivery pipeline is allowed to make those changes. And you can then, using CloudTrail for example, actually alert when somebody is doing an out-of-band change to your environment or even revert that. So there is no more configuration drift happening. No one is fiddling with the production environment that is introducing snowflakes anywhere. Everything is under control. Another thing that introduced a lot of friction in our data center setup and we were not bold enough in that world and now we are trying to be more bold is having those staging and test environments where the software during your delivery pipeline needs to go through, especially when talking about integration in a uh, staging environment. We had a lot of effort to keep those staging environment up and running and have all services integrate with each other and nevertheless we did not always find the, the, the bugs that we later found in production because there are differences from load and usage pattern in production. So 
We are now completely skipping the production, uh, the staging environment. We integrate in production. This is a bold move, but it removes a lot of friction and it also plays into the meme of being fast. Nevertheless, uh, means be bold but not stupid. You, you sh still should have confidence in the changes you introduce in your production environment. You just use now different tools to verify that and to reduce the impact of, of failures you will nevertheless introduce in production. But you're not having those gates which slow you down before going into production. I will just briefly iterate through those and will not go into details if you're interested. They are all Googleable. Uh, so we use feature toggles to actually decouple the deployment from the feature release. So the feature release is switching the feature toggle and the code is always, even when it's not production ready, part of the, of the release process. We use consumer-driven contracts to verify the integration before the service is deployed in production. To reduce the impact of potential failures in production, we use canary releases where you just put out the canary and see whether it's hold, holding up to the traffic and if it's uh, dying, you just pull back the canary and, and uh, learn from that. We use a technique called shadow traffic where when introducing a new service, you fork off the traffic from the old service to the new service so you actually have the new service under production load before you bring it into production. So the actual release is then a, a non-event because the service is actually verified to handle it. The last concept in there is semantic monitoring, meaning that you constantly verify that your core user journeys in your application are actually working. Semantic monitoring or user journey testing. There is a blog post uh, from Thoughtworks on Martin Fowler's Blicky, I believe, who's going into more details if you're interested. And then the times are over for those uh, server hacking uh, knowing yourself by name and finding it cute, those snowflakes. We are now only interested in kettles, not in the pet itself, meaning immutable servers. Don't change your servers in production. Recreate them with the previous scene delivery pipeline and treat them as, paddle, uh, as cattle, not as pets. And you have seen a lot of, whoops, a lot of talks around serverless, meaning I'm not interested in the cattle anymore. Wherever possible, I go for the meat, go for the hamburger, and don't uh, deal with the surface anymore. This is one of our service architectures, a sample of a real service in production. And as you can see, there is a lot of those serverless things are in there. And this is something we are aiming for to, to improve on that. What's also fascinating with those teams when they take ownership of their service. And what's happening there is nobody told them to build a monitoring dashboard like this. This is a team that's feeling the responsibility for running the service in production and actually learning from the service. 
There are a lot of interesting metrics on this on this dashboards, including uh, the price for the service uh, on, on the AWS bill and a lot of other things. The team is taking care of this service. And this monitoring is also very important, as briefly mentioned, that we actually see how the service is uh, working in production and more important in many ways than testing. Because when you're testing, you're testing only one service in isolation. And when you got also rid of your staging environment, it's very important to verify that the whole system is running in production. And therefore, um, we aim more for monitoring and still do testing. But testing is only done at the point of release. And therefore, if you have many, many releases during the day, uh, with, with a lot of services that integrate, monitoring becomes more important. Now let's uh, briefly look at another thing that comes with the self-contained system. Of course, those self-contained systems, in the end, should build a UI that's not visible to the user that actually different services are working behind the scenes. And this is one of the prices we had to pay to keep those teams autonomous. We have teams that own the containing page. This is the core purpose of the page. This is why the page exists. Think in terms of Amazon.com, there is the product detail page. This page exists because Amazon wants to display the product. But there are other things on this page built by different teams, different services, that also needs to be displayed there, which are then composed into the page. The reviews and the ratings, similar products. This, this would be examples of other services that then are contained in this page. You need some, some technologies to help you with that. We have built a UI composition layer. And alongside, we are also using CloudFront, have built the, the setup to make this whole approach uh, going hybrid possible, which also allows us uh, well, which, which also helps us during the migration. So all traffic for services which have not built in the new stack, which are still in existence in the old stack, are just routed back to the data center. And all of those new services are hitting AWS and are going through the composition layer, which is enable us, enabling us to do the UI composition. The last thing I want to mention is around culture is something what we learned. I told you that we started out with one team, which then over time had learned many things and was an experienced team. And then we pulled in from the rest of the organization the team members for the next teams, those that need to learn. And we believe it's a very good idea to actually mix them up. During this ramp up, we mixed the experienced and the learners. The idea was that due to working together in a team, they learn from, from the experienced guys. The learning part worked very well. The drawback of this approach was that we over a long time didn't have stable teams, which is something we, we realized rather late. So now, when ramping up teams, 
We have to ex we, we keep the experienced teams. We let them stay stable teams so they can trust each other and actually be high performance teams and build new teams from those learners and use the experienced teams to coach the new learners, but they then go through a longer learning cycle. But overall, keeping the teams stable and not mixing them has uh, improved the situation. This was all by me. I hand over back to Konstantin. Thank, Thank you, Christian. Thanks. So last year when we gave this talk, uh, one of the feedbacks we got was, I was expecting more technology in this story. I was expecting this to be more deeper 300 level technology. Now think of the things that Christian told you and that we are going, that we're discussing here. Think of this as organizational technology. Think of your organization like a machine, like a system, and how to use those principles and those mechanisms to improve your system that is your organization. And one mechanism at Amazon that we use to keep up with the fast pace of, of these times with the fast pace of technology is reminding ourselves that at Amazon it's always day one. And this concept of thinking like day one, this pioneering thinking that Christian told you about, but that it's also very, very true at Amazon, thinking of every day as still being day one for cloud. Even though we have learned to get today that we have more than 100 services at AWS, it's still day one for cloud for us. There's still so much to do. There's still so much to invent, so much new stuff to build. This concept is so important that Amazon has named a whole building day one. And um, Somebody asked Jeff Bezos during an all-hands meeting, so Jeff, how does day two look like? And that kicked off a whole rant by, by Jeff around how dangerous day two thinking can be. Because if, you're stopping, if you stop thinking like a pioneer, if you stop questioning the status quo, you start becoming complacent, you start, becoming, you start falling back, you start accepting the current status quo as the new reality. And, and he called it day two is stasis, and he went on and on and on. And you can look him up on, on YouTube on, on elaborating on how dangerous he thinks day two is. And he wrote down a lot of his management wisdom in the last letter to shareholders, and uh, you can look it up on this page here. And one journalist called this letter to shareholders a management manual on one page. So I would highly encourage you to, to read that letter to shareholders. And in this letter, he gives us four tips and mechanisms to embrace if we, were, if we are to avoid day two. And the first one is to bring true customer obsession into your organization. And I think Christian's approach of putting those people together into autonomous teams that only care about what are we doing for the customer, how are we helping our customer find their new car, list their new car, go through the search experience, and then think as a whole team devoted to that single customer experience or customer journey. That is a, a way of, of implementing true customer obsession in your company. It means experimenting patiently. This is why feature toggles are important. This is why these mechanisms help them experiment quickly and find that thing that really works for your customer. And, it, and also accepting failures as part of that. Because let's be honest, we don't really know what the killer application of digitization is going to be in the next year. We simply have to try out many things and then see what is it that our customers really want. And that is why experimentation is so important. And experimentation also means to be okay with an experiment failing because that's a new learning opportunity. 
So the other thing that Jeff gave us is to, he told us to resist proxies. So what is a proxy? A proxy is a placeholder. A proxy is saying, I know what my customer wants because I have some data lying here that tells me everything, and avoiding true customer feedback by actually talking to your customers. And in a traditional organization, it is an interesting exercise to ask your ops team, when did you say, see the last time your customer? When did you talk to your customer the last time? And they go, what? I'm here to make this server run. I'm not here to help customers. It's my servers that I'm concerned about. And that's wrong. Help your employees, have, help every employee in your organization to understand the customer, to really understand the customer by overcoming those proxies and not just look at surveys and data, but really talk to customers. And sometimes a process can be used as a proxy, and many times it is used as a proxy to avoid really dealing with reality. And people like to hide behind processes. I followed the process, therefore it must be right. That may not be the best solution. Sometimes old processes should be put to the test whether you really need them or whether there is a faster, easier way to accomplish the same results. The third thing is about embracing external trends, and that is a not or ignoring trends can be very dangerous. I used to work for some companies who ignored a couple of trends, and today they are not really relevant anymore, or they're not even existing anymore. So when you see a new trend coming up, it's always a good idea to think, okay, how can I take advantage of that trend? How can I embrace it? How can I make sure that we understand what this trend means to our business and to our technology and how we can use it for us? Because if you ignore a trend, it may be very dangerous. And today's trends are, of course, machine learning, AI, IoT, sensor data, all of these things you're learning about in this conference, and try to relate all of them to what you can do for your customer with it. And finally, try to learn the art of high-velocity decision-making. You can think of decision-making like walking through a door when you choose something. And at Amazon, we have learned that most doors are two-way doors. It means that if we decide to do something, most of the time, this is a decision we can take back if it doesn't work out. So for most of these decisions, if you know that, that this decision is something you can take back, you don't need to ask for permission. You simply do it and then see if it works. And if it doesn't work, you can always go back, backtrack, and do something else. Some doors can be dangerous, like those doors in, in the airports where it says on the sign, if you, go, if you walk through this door, there's no going back. You have to go through security again. And then it pays off to, to dive deep and analyze the situation and do that. But in my experience, Many customers are still very conservative. They treat every door as a dangerous door, that there's no going back, and then they hide themselves up in the ivory tower and analyze everything to death, and after three years, they wonder, why isn't, isn't anybody buying my product? So try to understand what are the decisions that you can take back, and then follow quickly through it, learn how to be a high-velocity decision maker, and try to understand which are the decisions that are really worthy of analyzing. So when you go back after this week to your companies and to your teams and to your, to your work, uh, why not do a day one workshop with your team? Try to find some people who are interested in, in, in digitization, who are interested in building something new. Try to identify the builders in your organization and create your first small and autonomous team. Try to put in people from all of the functions. Try to put in people from business, from development and ops and then call them all engineers, like Christian did, or builders, 
which is the term that we use. Everybody's a builder now. You should be building instead of running RFPs uh, over and over and let somebody else build. You should be building it yourself. And then try to identify your digital assets. What is the core data that is going to be the center of your digital business model? If you own that data, great. If you don't own that data, how can you collect that data? How can you analyze logs or build analytics into your pro products or start asking your customers or find other ways to collect that data that is going to, the to be the basis of your digital business model? And then try to brainstorm. What is, how can you make money out of that data? How can you create a new service? How can you help your customers through that data and build, experiment, and iterate on top of that to find that killer application? And when your first team has built something and it really works and you get feedback from customers and you went through that circle, start celebrating those successes so that other people learn about that and that people become interested and notice you and then kind of like spread the virus of a successful digital company within your, your, your organization. Because to be honest, many traditional organizations, they really come with an immune system and you need to learn how to overcome your own immune system by creating those successful projects and making sure that the good news is spreading here. So finally, it turns out that Amazon occasionally sells books. And here are some book recommendations of books that I would highly like you to read. So if you're interested in, in how to implement the DevOps culture and what it is about, The Phoenix Project is a really good example. It's a novel. You can read it at bedtime. Just don't read it to your kids. It won't really work. Uh, but it's a nice story. And it'll help you understand what are the conflicts that your IT department is going through, what are the conflicts that your business department is going through, and what are the things that that they can help you bring those two together. The interesting thing here is that the Phoenix Project is actually a rewritten book from the manufacturing industry, which is called The Goal, where all of the lean principles were applied to production plans. And now you can apply the same principles to IT by reading The Phoenix Project. If you're interested in thinking about your organization like a big machine and how to transform your organization by tweaking that machine. The systems thinking book is a really good one. It's a little bit a theoretical big tome, but it's interesting because it helps you understand what are the mechanisms that are at play in your organization and how can you remodel your organization to be more nimble, faster, and more modern. And since principles are so important, Uh, there's actually a book called Principles by Ray Dalio, which is one of the most successful hedge fund managers. And he really took the time to boil down all of his management wisdom that he built up and learned across the last decades and boiled it down into individual principles for managers. So that is a great Christmas gift for your manager, if you like. And finally, if you ever wondered how to combine the, the, the things that make startups so successful and so fast with the good things about the enterprise and how to bring them together. The Lean Enterprise is a good book here. And an interesting thing here, this is actually the book where I stole the statistic from. You remember 15 years, 62 years, it's from this book. But the other thing that I found interesting here is that um, if you take together all of the innovation bu budgets of the large enterprises and you sum them up, you will end up with a number that is a lot bigger than all of the venture capitalist money together. That's great. That essentially means 
If you're working for a large enterprise and if you get your act together and if you understand how innovation works and if you implement all of these things, then you're going to be a lot faster and a lot more successful than startups because you have more money, you have more resources, you have more capacity, and you have more employees, more creativity that you can drive, that you can let your innovation be driven by. So with that, thank you very much for coming. And as you go to the, to the pub, at the pub crawl, try to discuss with your colleagues and peers here how to bring this into practice. So thank you.